Well, good morning, everyone. How are we? Good morning, good morning. How are we doing today? Good, good, good. Hello, my name's Ryan. Uh, for those who are visiting, I'm the lead pastor here at Arbor. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out and turn to the Gospel of Mark. We are back in our series, The Life and Way of Jesus, where we are leaning into and learning about... Um, the life and way of Jesus. You guessed it. That's right. Um, uh, because we're doing this uh, because we as a church, we want to be more faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Amen? Uh, we want to be with him. We want to become like him. And we want to do what Jesus did. And so we figure the best way to do that is to deeply acquaint ourselves with the life and work of Jesus. And so we are going back to one of the source documents, to the Gospel of Mark, to do just that. And we are going to be picking up where we left off all the way back in November in Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. So if you've got your Bibles, you can make your way there. Mark 6, 45 through 52. But before we, we go there, I first want to talk to all of you this morning uh, about something called uh, tunnel vision. Have you heard of this concept before? Tunnel, tunnel vision, right? Are we familiar with this? Um, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, um, this term was first used back in the 1940s, and, and it primarily had a, a physiological connotation, and it meant this. Listen, it was defined as a medical condition that makes someone see only things that are directly in front of them. But over time, uh, people started to use this phrase um, to, to mean something about someone's mental or psychological state. And so when, when, you would, when you would use this term tunnel vision or when you use this term right now, you usually use it with a negative implication, meaning something like the person is so concentrated or focused on one thing that they're unable to notice anything else around them. Yeah, so like here are a few examples. It's like, it's kind of like that thing when you go to the refrigerator and you open it up and you're looking for well, mayonnaise, butter, something like that, and you're so focused on finding that one thing, right? You know what I'm talking about? And you're looking around and you're looking for it and you know it's like on the top right shelf, but you just can't see it. And then all of a sudden your wife yells from across the house, it's on the top right shelf, and you look and lo and behold, there it is, right? <laughs> or it's like that thing if you've been around young kids or if you have young kids and they're watching television, and you're trying to get their attention, and so you say their name, and you're like, hey, Ethan, and you wait, and there's no response. So, so, so you say their name again, but you say it like a little bit louder, and you say, hey, Ethan, and you wait, and you get no response. So you like have to go right in front of them and like grab them by the shoulders and say, hey, kid, I'm talking to you. Do you want chicken nuggets or not? <laughs> right? It, it, it's like that. Now, those are some benign examples, but this, this phenomena of tunnel vision is something that seems to happen like all the time throughout all of life, and in more serious situations, it can carry with it some pretty negative consequences. Like, we have tunnel vision about our careers, and, and we're so focused on success that we begin to neglect all of our other responsibilities, all of our other obligations. We go to a place of burnout and our life begins to fall apart or say we're in a relationship with someone and they offend us in such a way where we get so focused with tunnel vision on that one offense that we can't think about anything else with respect to that relationship and that relationship starts to fall apart. You see, the trouble with tunnel vision is that we can get so focused on one particular 
thing that we can miss what's truly important. In fact, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. When we fix our focus on the seemingly urgent, we can miss what's truly important. When we fix our focus on the seemingly urgent in life, we can miss what's truly important. Now, this is a problem for us. It was a problem 2,000 years ago for the disciples. So let's go to Mark 6 now and spend some time with them, starting in verse 45. Remember two months ago, the last time we were with this crew, they were with thousands of other people, and Jesus had just miraculously fed them. Do you remember that? Remember that story where Jesus fed the 5,000? And so that was an incredible scene, a full day. Now here we are, Mark 6:45. That busy day of ministry is coming to a close and we pick up the action on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 45. Immediately, that's one of Mark's favorite words, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side, to Bethsaida. While he dispersed the crowd, after saying goodbye to them, he went to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he, Jesus, was alone on the land. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Now as the night was ending, he came to them walking on the sea, for he wanted to pass by them. When, he saw, when they saw him walking on water, they thought he was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them, have courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up with them into the boat and the wind ceased and they were completely astonished because they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. Father in heaven, we humble ourselves before you. We pray that your spirit would soften our hearts and then open up our ears and eyes to see what you would have for us this morning. But if we are so narrowly focused on something in our lives right now, God, I pray that you would lift our heads so that we would see what's truly important this morning. Would you speak through your word, we pray. Amen. All right, let's unpack this story a little bit. And the first thing that I want to highlight and point out in this story is, is that this is a deeply familiar story to just about everyone, right? Like this is one of the Hall of Fame Jesus stories in the Gospels. Like, like even if you don't come to church a lot and, and, and you really don't follow Jesus, like chances are you know this story, Right? Jesus walking on water is such a familiar story. Now, if you've been in church for a while, if, if you've been following Jesus for many years, chances are, listen, you are so familiar with this story that this story has begun to, to lose any and all meaning to you. I mean, if you really think about it, this story almost becomes like a fairy tale or a fable of sorts. It's just one of the many supernatural or seemingly otherworldly things that Jesus did in the Gospels. But, but if you were to stop yourself, or like maybe as you were listening to that story being read, your eyes kind of glazed over and your mind drifted. You're like, oh, the Jesus walking on water story. I know this one. But listen, if you were to stop yourself in this moment and think about that story for just a second and ask yourself this question, simple question. Why did Jesus walk on water? Why did he do that? Why did he walk on water? Was he trying to prove something? Was he trying to show off to the disciples? 
Like, like look what I can do. I'm, I'm more special than other people. I can walk on this. Like, like, when you really stop and think about the story, even though you might be deeply familiar with it, you're not quite able to answer that question, why did Jesus walk on water? And we'll get to that a little bit later, okay? Because first what I want to do is I want us to spend some time with these disciples. Because if we're able to identify with anyone in this story, it's not the one who walked on the water, it's those who were in the boat, right? And we're able to identify with them because they were very practical people. Here's what I mean by that. Remember just before this, Jesus was teaching thousands of people there on the shore of Galilee people who had rushed to see Jesus, to be healed by him, to hear from him. And evening came and it was getting late. And what was on the disciples' minds? Food. Food. See, they're just like us. They're just like us. They're probably getting hangry. Maybe they had just gone through a fasting series and they tried fasting for the first time. And they were like, this is the worst. When are we going to be able to eat? But apparently they weren't just thinking about their own hunger. In fact, the text says that they were thinking about the practicality of all the other people there. All the other people there listening and hungering after the words and teachings of Jesus. Bread that was far more valuable than the regular bread they would be able to buy at the marketplace. But even still, the disciples, they said to Jesus in Mark 6, 35, maybe you remember this. This is an isolated place, Jesus. And it is already very late. Can you just hear the practicality in their voices? You should should send them away so they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something for, for themselves to eat. And so you see, they're very practically minded people. And I love Jesus' response here. He says this, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. You do it. He's like, okay, if you think it's such a problem, figure it out. Get them some food. But again, the disciples see the impracticality of Jesus' suggestion here. And so they respond again in a very practical way. Look. And they said, should we go and buy bread for 200 silver coins and give it to them to eat? Now, now, just so we know, 200 silver coins was like eight months' wages back then. Eight months wages. And so essentially they're like, Jesus, no, that's entirely impractical. How do you expect us to, you know us, Jesus, you know we're broke. We can't do that. It's entirely impractical. Listen, when we fix our focus on the seemingly urgent, we can miss what's truly important. In other words, the disciples here, they had tunnel vision. They had tunnel vision. They were so focused on this seemingly urgent, very practical matter of food here. And as a result, what we'll see is they miss what's truly important. And and listen, we would lack a certain level of self-awareness if we were just to observe the disciples and be like, man, they are so foolish for being so focused on such a practical matter. But But if we were really to stop and think about our own lives, we would realize how deeply practical we are, yeah? In fact, listen to this. We can miss the truly important when we're focused on the practical. When that's where our focus is aimed, when we are fixated on the practical things of life. We, like the disciples, are very practical people. And listen, here's the thing. It makes sense. It makes sense. There are so many practical things for us to attend to, right? I mean, we've got jobs that we've got to go to. 
because we need to get paid in order to pay those bills that we have every single month. And if we're fortunate enough, maybe we stash a little away in a savings account or a retirement account, and there are tasks to be taken care of around the house and meals to be made and errands to be run. There are so many very practical things for us to do. And listen, all of that's fine. All of that's good. Those are fine things to think of and attend to and care for. But have you ever stopped to think about how deep our practical mindedness goes? Ever stop to think about that? Like, like here, want to do a little thought experiment right now? You, you want to do this? Here we go, all right? So like, all of you came this morning with this expectation that this service was going to last about an hour, right? Give or take. We, had, we came in with this practical expectation. All of you show up around 10 o'clock, some at 10.15. We still love you. It's okay, all right? And, and, and we have this expectation that we'll be done in about an hour or so. And then at like 11.15, 11.30, we'll be out and about going to get lunch, running some errands, maybe heading home, turning on the Pro Bowl. Just kidding, no one watches the Pro Bowl, right? And so, so we, have, we have this kind of like practical expectation, but... Thought experiment. What if Hayden and the band come up here and they sing a song and you're like, all right, we're about done. What if they sing another song? And what if they were to sing another song? And what if you were to observe that there were just some people where like it was like, wow, like God is really doing something in this moment, but also I was planning on getting Chipotle in just a second, right? <laughs> and then what if they sing another song? And then what if I get back up and start talking again, Right? What's going on in your mind in that moment? Are you thinking, man, this is so impractical? Listen, I would be, truly, because I, too, am a very practical person. And listen, there's this level of consideration that we have with one another. We're going to respect each other's time, and we've set these expectations that are very practical. However, I think it's worth considering and reflecting on this question. Listen, am I so driven by what's practical that I'm missing what's truly important? Am I so driven by what's practical that I'm missing what's truly important? The disciples were. The disciples were. At the end of our passage, Mark says that after Jesus walked on water and got into the boat and the wind ceased, that they, that is the disciples, were completely astonished. Now hear this, that's the Greek word existemi existemi, which means something like they were beside themselves or completely stupefied, okay? Like, like, listen, they weren't amazed in this. They were completely, like, without words. They had no idea what was going on. They were confused. They were lost. And why? What does Mark say? Because they did not understand about the loaves. They missed what was truly important about what had just taken place on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, but their hearts were hardened. So don't misunderstand this moment here. The disciples do not see Jesus get into the boat and they're like, wow, he's amazing. He's the son of God. He's awesome. No, no, no. They just didn't get it. They missed it completely. What Mark is trying to say here is everything that we have seen and heard about Jesus up until this point, the healings, the casting out of demons, all the teachings, the feeding of thousands, him walking on water, calming storms, all of it, the disciples, it went right over their heads. They missed it. They completely missed it because they were just so stinking practical. Practical. 
We can miss the truly important when we're focused on the practical. And so again, we should ask ourselves, am I so driven by what's practical that I'm missing what's truly important? Well, after Jesus feeds thousands of people, the day is coming to an end, and he's going to do what he so often did, which was to go off alone and spend time with his heavenly Father. And so he makes the disciples, literally in the Greek, that word made, is he forced them. He compelled them into the boat. Jesus meant business here, and he sent them on to their next destination. And so Jesus goes up to the mountain while the disciples begin to row across the lake to Bethsaida. But unfortunately for the disciples, what they're going to encounter on the lake is actually very similar to what they encountered back in Mark 4 when they were on the lake and that storm struck. And Mark says that they were straining at the oars because the wind was against them. The ESV says that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. Listen, they were struggling. They were struggling to get to the other side. And then, and then Mark writes this, as the night was ending, and so remember, Jesus saw them start to struggle and they go the whole night struggling. Like this is happening all night long. They're just struggling on the water. They can't get across. And then he, that's Jesus there, came to them walking on the sea for he wanted to pass them by. I mean, can you imagine being the disciples in this moment? You just had this incredibly long day with thousands of people and like all the introverts are like, oh my gosh, I'd be wiped out at this point. And then Jesus is like, no, 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 it's not chill time. You got to get in this boat and go to the other side of the sea. And then you get in this boat and you start rowing and the wind starts picking up and you're like, oh no, not again. And you're struggling all night long and you're just like exhausted. You're probably not hungry because you had a lot of fish and bread earlier, but you're probably just so tired and you're just like wanting to get to the other side. And then finally, after paddling all night and making it nowhere, you finally lift up your head and look and you see in the distance this kind of figure and you're not sure, is that a person or what is that in the distance there and, and, and you see it get closer and you start to think, I, don't, I mean, I don't know what they were thinking. Maybe they were like, this was candid camera and they're like, is this a joke? Like, like what's happening? Like they thought Ashton Kutcher was going to come out of the hole. Maybe Peter was like, are we, are we getting punked right now or something? That's like an old early 2000s reference for anyone who's younger than like 40 right now. Um, what did they think it was, you know? Maybe, 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 maybe they were like, did I pass out? Is this a dream? Was, 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 was the fish bad? You know, like they were like, what's going on in this moment? And again, we are confronted with this question, like right here. Why was Jesus walking on water? Why was he doing this? Why did he let them struggle all night? Why did he want to pass them by? Was he just showing off? Was he trying to make a point? And again, we'll get to that in just a minute, okay? But how did the disciples respond to all this? Did they think it was a joke? No, not not at all. Look at their response again, verse 49. When they saw him walking on the water, they thought he was a ghost. And so they cried out, 
For they all saw him. They were, I mean, they, they, were, they, were ter- they were freaking out. They were not laughing. This was not a comedy. This was not a joke. This was a horror movie for them right now, okay? Like just imagine 12 dudes struggling in the boat all night long. The wind's picking up. The waves are crashing on the side of the boat. And they're thinking to themselves, like, we're not going to make it. And then they look in the distance and they see a ghost and they say to themselves, listen, I thought we were going to capsize and drown, but it turns out that we're going to be murdered by a ghost, that's how, that's how it ends. This is how it ends right here. But was it a murder ghost? No, it was not. It was Jesus. It was Je- Look at verse 50. Immediately, he spoke to them. Have courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And then he went up with them into the boat and the wind ceased. Again, we, we, we see here the disciples caught in this trap of tunnel vision right here. They were so focused on what was right in front of them, just trying to get across the lake to the other side that they missed what was so important. Again, when we fix our focus on the seemingly urgent, we can miss what's truly important. But listen, this time they weren't focused merely on the practical, but they were focused on this very real struggle that they were facing. And again, if there's one group of people that we can identify with in this story, it's these disciples Because just like the disciples, listen, we can miss the truly important when we focus on the struggle. We can completely miss what's what's truly important when we are so fixated on that trial, on that difficulty, on that painful thing that's right in front of us that we get this tunnel vision. We can miss the forest for the trees, so to speak, when we fix our focus and engage all of our energy on that struggle that's right in front of us. Now listen, that's not to say, this is not to say that the struggle we face, that the problem that's in front of us, that the trial we're dealing with is not a very real thing. The disciples were paddling across a sea, uh, exhausted in the middle of the night, the waves crashing up on the boat, that if that boat capsized, man, there are no life vests for them in that boat. There's no support for them coming. There's no coast, there's no like, you know, Jerusalem Coast Guard coming to save them in that moment. Like they're going down and they're probably going to die. This is a very real struggle. And so listen, the struggle is real, Right? It's what you're facing is real. The financial hardship, the inability to pay the bills, the struggle with joblessness, if that's something you face, and the worry and fear and anxiety that surround that, man, that's very real. That that, that relational fallout that you're facing and, and the brokenness there and the hurt that you feel or maybe the guilt and shame that you feel as the result of that broken relationship, man, that is very real. Health issues, difficult diagnosis, unsure of what the future may hold with all of that and just being like concerned about that, that is very real. Those struggles are real. They're real things. But hear this, while the struggle is real, the struggle itself is not your biggest problem. You see, the struggle becomes a bigger problem when we get so fixated on it that it causes us to miss what's truly important. Because for the follower of Jesus, what's truly important is not finding a solution for your struggle, it's seeing your struggle through the eyes of God. That's what's most important. 
1 Peter chapter 4, Peter is writing to a group of Christians that are being persecuted and martyred and they're suffering. And he says to them, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal. And he is not using fiery ordeal metaphorically here. They are literally burning these Christians alive. He says, don't be surprised at this, that this has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Like, oh my goodness, what's happening right now? Like, don't, don't, don't be surprised by this. But then what does he say? What does he say? He says, but rejoice. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Why? So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. When the struggle comes, it's for real. It's no joke. It can feel like a horror movie. It can feel like a tragedy. It is hard. It is painful. But know this. No struggle, no pain, no hardship, no hurt is wasted with God. He is working all of it for your good. You might ask, well, what is that good? Because I'm in the middle of this thing right now, and I don't see how that could be a possibility. Listen, what God's word, what God offers is not some sort of silver lining kind of hope. Here's the good. He is producing a holy perseverance in you. In the trial, in the hardship, in the struggle, he is producing a holy perseverance in you so that you would be, God's word says, mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And if you're like, I don't understand how that's good, as God walks you through what you're going through, you will understand why that is a good thing. God's word says his power is made perfect in weakness. In fact, his power rests all the more greatly upon you when you are weak. And the disciples in this story, we can only imagine how weak they were at the end of the night, exhausted at the end of themselves. But the unfortunate thing in this story is that they still missed what was truly important. They were trapped by this tunnel vision. They were so focused on the seemingly urgent, the practical things, this struggle that was right in front of them. They were so focused on all of that instead of the greatness that was right beside them. They missed the truly important. And what, what is truly important? Let's talk about that. What is truly important? Well, it's not rocket science. Recognizing Jesus for who he really is and fixing our focus on him is what's truly important. And so we've spent like all of our time with the disciples. How about we spend a little time with Jesus now? That sound good? And maybe we can try to answer this question, why did Jesus walk on water, right? We can answer that question. And in order to answer that question, uh, look with me in Job chapter nine. You're like, Job? Like the sad guy in the Old Testament? Um, Yes, him. Job chapter nine, verse eight. Listen to this. God alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Does that ring a bell? He does great and unsearchable things and wonderful things without number. If he he passes by me, I cannot see him. If he goes by, I cannot perceive him. Why is Jesus walking on the water? He is walking on the water to show the disciples, to show the original readers of Mark, and to show us now 2,000 years later who he really is. Because that's what this story is really about. 
This story is not about how Jesus can get into the boat of your life and calm your storms. That's not what this story is about. This story is about understanding who Jesus really is and fixing your focus on him in the midst of your storms. That's what this story is about. And even though the disciples, they don't get it here, what Jesus is doing is he's doing something that only God can do. That's what Jesus is doing. Who walks on the water? Who treads on the waves of the sea? God does. And so what Jesus is doing here by walking on the water is he is saying to the disciples and he is saying to all of us, I am Jesus. I am God most high here in the flesh with you. I am the long-awaited one, the Messiah, the Son of God. And did you catch it there at the end of Job, that other connection to Mark 6? If he passes by me, I cannot see him. And so when Jesus went to go pass by the disciples, perhaps the first time you read through that in the passage, you thought to yourself, like, is Jesus just trying to show off? Like, man, tough night in the boat, guys. See you guys on the other side. That's not what Jesus is doing there. When we see this language, pass by, pass by me, passing by, used in the scriptures, it's almost exclusively used in connection with God as he reveals who he truly is to his people. Exodus 33 with Moses. Moses said, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass by you. And I will proclaim the Lord by name before you. And so what is Jesus doing here? Why is he walking on water? Why is he passing by the disciples? What is he trying to do here? Listen, he's trying to show them that he is not merely Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary and Joseph, a carpenter. He is trying to get them to see that he is the long-awaited one, that he is Messiah, that he is, as the Nicene Creed put it, God of very God. He is begotten, not made of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. He is the one who can tread on the waves of the sea. And he says as much in the boat, too. This is a really cool thing. He says this. Remember, he says, Have courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. What's so cool about that phrase there is that in the Greek, it is I, is this Greek phrase, ego emi. Ego eimi, so literally translated, he's saying, take courage, I am. That's what ego eimi means. Take courage, I am, fear not. That's what he's saying there. And at this moment, as this gospel was being read to those earliest Jewish audiences that Mark was writing to, their ears would have perked up because those exact same words were used in the Greek translation of the Torah when God was revealing his name to Moses in Exodus 3 when he says, ego emi ha'on. He says, I am that I am. And so when Jesus gets into the boat and calms the storm that they had been paddling through all night long, he says, have courage. It is Jesus Christ, the great I am. He is revealing himself to the disciples, recognizing Jesus for who he really is and fixing our focus on him is what is truly important. And so all of that to say, what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is putting all of his cards out on the table. 
He's not trying to veil or hide anything here for his disciples and for us right now. He is feeding thousands. He's calming storms. He's healing sicknesses. He's walking on water, and he's saying, take courage. I am. Fear not. This is what he's doing, and it's all right there. It's all right there in front of our faces. It's all right there in front of the disciples' faces. And yet they miss it. They were completely astonished, stupefied. They didn't get it because they did not understand about the loaves. But, right, this last part, their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. You see, Jesus doesn't make truly recognizing him hard, but sometimes our hearts do. Sometimes our hearts do. But N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, says this, listen. I don't think his remark about the disciples being hard-hearted is a major criticism of them. What else might one expect? He is simply warning that to grasp all this, to grasp the, the feeding and the healings and the teachings and all of it will need more than suspension of disbelief. It will take a complete change of heart. And so here at the end, unfortunately, uh, I don't have three easy steps to recognize who, tr- who Jesus truly is. I don't have that. Because like Wright said, this isn't a matter, listen, this isn't a matter of gathering up all of the data points. This isn't a matter of gathering up all of the facts and all of the information and processing it and then readjusting my life accordingly and then working forward from that. It's not a matter, it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. And so this morning, if we find ourselves stuck, trapped by tunnel vision, we find ourselves so preoccupied with the practical We find ourselves so fixated on our struggles that we can't see Jesus for who he truly is and fix our focus on him. Then listen, you don't need more data. You don't need more information. You don't need more facts. What we truly need in this moment is a change of heart. And just like walking on water, that's something only God can do. Would you pray with me, Father in heaven? We humble ourselves before you right now because you are truly a great God. Your son, Jesus Christ, came here to reveal his true nature to us by healing, by feeding, by doing what only God can do, by walking on water. And Lord, so many of us today, we find ourselves preoccupied with the practical things of life. And Lord, you understand us. You you have walked in our very shoes, Jesus, and so you sympathize with us, and you know how difficult and and busy life can be. But, but, But God, would you help us in this moment? Lord, we humble ourselves and we ask, God, would you change our hearts? 
whether we find ourselves preoccupied with the practical or, or, or so fixated on some struggle or trial or problem, God, we, we, we ask that you would soften and change and transform our hearts, Lord. If they have grown hard over the years because we've been so fixated on the practical things, on the struggle, Lord, we ask that you would break through, God. Would you break through and make a way Open our eyes this morning to see you for who you really are and give us perspective, Lord. Give us perspective on all those practical things that we think are so important. Give us perspective on the struggle that you know it is very real, Lord. Would we lay these things before your feet this morning, Jesus, and humble ourselves before you? Holy Spirit, would you work? Would you transform? Would you change our hearts so that our eyes would not be down in the boat in the middle of the struggle, but we would lift our eyes and we would see you coming toward us. Not a ghost, but Messiah, the Savior of all. Would we entrust ourselves to you with all the practical things, with all the struggles we face, would we entrust our lives to you, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand.